This is Judaism Unbound, episode 60. The future is already here. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And I want to apologize a little bit for the quality of my voice today. I've had a cold, and uh, I worry that I sound a little bit like a frog. How dare you get sick? That is not allowed on this podcast. (laughs) Anyway, at the top of the show, when we do these uh, look-back episodes, we like to make a few suggestions, pieces of information, recommendations to our listeners. One thing that I really want to emphasize today is just this... uh, remind people that we're now posting transcripts of our shows on the web. So if you go to our website, www.judaismunbound.com, and go to whatever episode you're trying to listen to, uh, if we have a transcript ready, there will be a button under the audio that you can just click and go to a full transcript of that episode. We don't have them all yet. We're trying to get them done pretty soon after we release an episode. And then when we have a little bit more funding, we're going to go back and do all of our uh, first year episodes. So if you're a funder out there and you're particularly intrigued by the idea that you could read our initial episodes, then uh, please give us a call. And on the subject of funding, uh, we are tremendously grateful to our listeners who support the podcast financially. We really, really need it. Uh, It is not a way to get rich running a Jewish podcast. So we're really grateful for those of you who are willing to make a donation, whether that's a small recurring donation, a large recurring donation, a large one-time donation, anything that you might be willing to spare, we would be very grateful for. So you can just go to www.judaismunbound.com slash donate to make a donation to our work. It's tax deductible, and we're really grateful to you for doing that. And finally, I'll just say that we would love it if folks would go over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and even write a brief review. First of all, it makes us really feel good to read those reviews and find out how people are feeling about the show, assuming that that's that they're feeling good. And um, some of them are actually really quite moving to us. Yeah, I echo all of that. I, I just want to really express how psyched I am about the transcripts because I think um, just for a, a wide variety of purposes they're helpful um the funny thing and i think i've mentioned this is that i'm not much of an audio person as much as i host a podcast it's not really how i naturally operate in the world and i get distracted very easily so for me being able to sit at sit and actually read through is a a better way for me to internalize things um and maybe some of you out there are similar on that front and the other thing is that i am you know we say this all the time i'm a millennial and i'm used to being able to control f everything and find terms all over the place and you can't control f audio you can't speak into a microphone and tell it to find it somewhere in the episode but now with our transcripts you can Yeah, and I'm really excited about all kinds of ways that we might use the transcripts. The other thing that we're really excited about is that, um, I think we've mentioned this before, that quite a few people have been getting in touch with us and letting us know that they're essentially creating sort of book clubs with our podcast, that they're getting together with friends, listening to the podcast, and then talking about the ideas. And in our opinion, most exciting is not only talking about the ideas, but actually experimenting with doing things differently in their families, in their groups of friends, in their communities, in their organizations, as a result of some of the ideas and some of the uh, concepts that they're thinking about. And we're so excited to hear that that's been going on. We'd love to know if there are people out there who want to do that, who could use some extra support from us. Uh, are there things that we might do that would be supportive to those of you who are already doing 
doing it. Call-in shows, um, other kinds of ways of, of getting together. We're really looking over the course of the next year to support that project in a bigger way. Uh, if you're interested in having us come out to your community to speak, to do workshops with organizations, we're excited about doing all of that. We've been doing a bunch of that, and uh, we're trying to be a little bit more active about it. So, Lex, let's jump into our discussion of the last uh, group of episodes. We've uh, Usually we have three episodes before one of these discussions. This time we had four. Our conversations with B'nai Lappi, Juan Mejia, Carmel Chiswick, and Chaim Herring. And... I would really like to start by jumping into some of the thoughts that Juan Mejia's episode really brought up for me. I think it's kind of the key that unlocks the rest of the episodes, too. And, you know, it's been really interesting to me as I've been reflecting upon it in the in the weeks since we recorded it to think about how, on the one hand, there's a lot to talk about in terms of people who might be converting to Judaism. And I really want to get into that on a lot of levels. But I'd also like to say at the beginning that it seems to me that once we wrap our minds around the experience of people who are not Jewish or who are not Jewish in terms of their practice, but they may have some very distant Jewish ancestry, but they're sort of functionally not living Jewish lives. And these folks get interested in Judaism, and then what happens? Or they're not interested in Judaism, but something happens that gets them interested in Judaism, and then a series of events starts to happen that Juan Mejia was talking about. And it just struck me as I was listening to it again that that's quite close to exactly the experience of people who are Jewish, who are not involved in Jewish life, Jewish organizations in a very active way, who feel very distant from them. And if a non-Jew could find something on the web that might get them interested in Judaism, well, it seems, of course, that could happen to somebody who is Jewish. So really, it feels to me that at a certain point, there isn't a whole lot of difference necessarily between someone who's Jewish and someone who's not Jewish in terms of the stuff that we're talking about on this podcast, which is basically a trajectory of the development of a new version of Judaism or of new versions of Judaism that would appeal to different people than than the old institutions tend to appeal to. I just so deeply appreciated his... He, he distilled what he was thinking about in a great image, which was that we that, that the Jewish world was crying over spilt milk on the beach with its backs to the tsunami. Um, and what he was talking about there is that he was saying, you know, we're, we've got this demographic erosion theory where we're losing Jews and everybody is up in arms and trying to figure out what to do about that. But meanwhile, because of the internet, and he really did emphasize that over and over, and I think that's an important part of this whole question, but because of the internet and access to information, that is very quickly shifting to the point that the issue is not, or maybe will not be, I don't know if it's pe uh, present tense or future tense, but um, it's not, how are we going to retain numbers? It's, oh my gosh, careful what you wish for, because what if we actually do get a huge influx of people who are not currently Jewish or who are distantly Jewish, who all of a sudden decide that this is something that's inspiring to them and important to them? What would we do? And would that challenge our ethnic 
predispositions about Judaism? Would that challenge our historic ways of connecting? Would that force us to think outside of our current paradigms? Yes, to a lot of those. And for me, it's exciting and cool because I, and I know you, Dan, are in the framework of Judaism as a constantly evolving and revolving kind of beast that historically has gone through a lot of big ticket kinds of transformations. But it certainly challenges what we're used to if we do see such an influx, such a tsunami. Yeah. And I mean, just to sort of make that more clear, right? I think that, I mean, I love the image of crying over spilled milk with your back to the tsunami. It's an amazing image. And just, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of times I've heard it as a kind of jokey thing that said that, you know, the numbers of the number of Jews in the world is smaller than the rounding error in the Chinese census. So on the one hand, that's kind of talked about as a jokey way of talking about how few Jews are in the world. But to me, it, it kind of raises the question of, um, well, what if that rounding error of folks in China wanted to become Jewish? Right. Or And what if and and. If actually there were people in China who wanted to become Jewish, it seems likely that it would be a greater number than the rounding error, right? Meaning that there are more potential Jews out there who are currently non-Jews by far than the number of Jews in the world. And on the one hand, if you if you like that idea, then we can talk about it, right? If you don't like that idea which I think for various reasons, which we could get into, you know, including probably racism, for a long time, the Jewish community would have said, we're not interested in that, right? We have a sort of ethnocentric idea of what Judaism is. Yes, you can convert and no, it doesn't matter what race you were, um, but we don't encourage conversion, we don't proselytize, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that there might be a lot of non-Jews out there who want to become Jewish was a relatively irrelevant idea in the Jewish experience, plus the fact that until quite recently, I think a lot of Jews would have said whether this was true or not, that of course nobody would want to convert to Judaism in their right mind because who would want to be oppressed, you know, who would want to convert into an oppressed people, et cetera, et cetera. So they didn't really think about mass conversions a whole lot. I think that what Juan's experience is starting to demonstrate is that, and he talked about this, is that with the internet, you know, I love the other image that he gave, right? That it's kind of like the SETI program, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, right? That if you beam messages out into space, you have to accept, you have to imagine that one of them might get heard and then there's going to be following steps from that. And so if we're beaming out Judaism over the internet, even if the motivation is to beam it out to people who are Jewish, that's going to get heard by many non-Jews who might like it. And, you know, I, so, so on the one hand, I can see that for certain people, they, they might be horrified at that idea, right? That all of a sudden they're going to be all these, not, not that, again, not necessarily because of racism, but because of an idea that says, well, these people, they don't know anything and they're going to overwhelm the Jews who do know. And the, 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 the main, you know, the, the, the Jewish community that's organized and what are we going to do? And it's going to be a crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I don't even know what to say to those folks. Like, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? There's nothing to do, right? I think that what Juan has described to us is simply a reality, that that stuff is out there. That is part of the digital revolution, is that all human knowledge is available to everyone in the world 
with an internet connection at all times, and there's really nothing you can do to make that unavailable. So now the question becomes, once it's available, what happens? And if it's not crappy, which I think we have to imagine that, right, Judaism is not crappy, right? I mean, that, that, that if it was crappy, we should close up this podcast. <laughs> like, what are we doing yeah. with our lives, right? So yeah. if it's a valuable thing, if it's it, that, then people out there are going to see that and are going to be grabbed by that potential and they're going to want to do something. And then, then the next set of questions is, what are they going to want to do? We know that in Korea, this is a real thing. You mentioned China, but we know in Korea, there are millions of people engaging with the Talmud, learning from the Talmud. More, I, mean, I, don't, I don't have a stat for this, but I would assume based on the number of Jews in the world and the percentage that are engaging with Talmud, that there are more Koreans engaging with Talmud uh, then there are Jews engaging with Talmud. Now, are they doing so in the same ways that Jews do? Are they doing so for the same reasons? Probably not. But they are engaging with a text that is native to the Jewish tradition and looking to gain, whether it's guidance or knowledge or something from it. That's a huge deal. And once again, those people are not calling themselves Jews, but I see nothing that would prevent a large group of those people at some point saying, you know, this thing was really cool. We learned about it in school growing up. Um, that is the kind of development that could lead to a real, you know, to use Juan Mejia's language, tsunami. I want to get at particularly what kinds of challenges that brings up because it's, you brought up racism, which I think is part of it. Um, but also just for people who think of themselves as, say, cultural Jews, there's, we are small enough in the world that, that there is, at least from a perception kind of basis, sort of Jewish ways of being. We can still make jokes about pastrami on rye, and we can still talk about Jewish strengths. The Jews, are, Jews have Jewish humor. Like, if you ask somebody what's Christian humor in the United States, I don't know how you really answer that because what is it 70% of the country is in an eth it like comes from a christian background um so you lose something when you get this big influx you lose some elements of uniqueness of culture in that sense because you've blended so many cultures that share something that we that would be called judaism in a bigger sense so I don't want to poo-poo and say that there aren't like real worries here, but for me, they're just totally worth it for what we could gain in an incredible, rich, diverse Jewish people that would be, you know, all around the world, whether it's Korea or South America or anywhere else. I think what you alluded to earlier about, you know, people joke, like, why would you want to convert to this oppressed religion? Like, it's a haha -ha thing. But people actually seem to have this deeply internalized understanding that Judaism, not even about the oppression, but that Judaism itself is just not particularly appealing. And so they actually don't seem to think that if, if it was opened up to the world, tons of people would be interested in Judaism. I really disagree with them. And I... Um, I was, I, I, I really, for the examples that I mentioned before and from Juan's evidence in Latin America and otherwise, it's very clear that when people hear about the possibility of Judaism alongside other possibilities, they are often intrigued by it. And once again, it's not that they all go the conversion route and say like, 
I'm in this new system. Many of them just say, I like Talmud. Um, I've mentioned my friend who isn't Jewish, who like is really into Talmud from a queer lens, who didn't even know much about Svara, the organization. Like there are people who really like, say, the technology of a Passover Seder and do it not as Jews. I mean, we a lot of Jews are sometimes upset about that, by the way. Maybe that's a related issue. Um, we, ha- we haven't really talked about cultural appropriation and how that plays into this, which is like definitely part of the puzzle for sure. But we may need to really sort of take a step back and actually think, you know what? Maybe we deserve some self-confidence. Maybe, maybe this set of traditions and holidays and and stories and teachings actually when when put together in meaningful ways and when sort of you know riffed on in contemporary forms are really exciting and i think for a lot of people even those working for jewish organizations they don't come from that perspective they come from this place that well judaism's okay, but like really I'm sort of here because I was born into it and I grew up going to whatever youth groups and and like have this sort of nationalistic membership in this people. And I don't understand why somebody who isn't part of it would like desire that. It's just sort of how I was born. It's, It's not how I see it. If I were running one of the large Jewish movements, you know, I would at least introduce in a strong way into our strategic planning process the idea that we might take on a very different attitude toward conversion and towards non-Jews because that may be the future of our more traditional forms of Judaism. I also want to talk, though, about the non-traditional forms of Judaism that that we talk about mostly on this show um, because... You know, I think that the framing that we generally give to it is that there are all these Jews that, that the Pew study has identified that are proud to be Jewish and that are um, uh, that being Jewish is important to them, but they're not uh, religious and they're not affiliated organizationally. And we're kind of putting the idea out there that we should follow a disruptive innovation trajectory by planting a seed out in that world. We'll talk about some of those details more later because I think they connect a lot with what Carmel Chiswick and Benny Lappi and Chaim Herring were talking about, but that we plant the seed in that world of non-participating Jews. It's something that's good enough in the term of art way of talking about good enough, uh, what they need. It solves their jobs to be done. And then it kind of grows from there. And a kind of a new version of Judaism, whether a 3.8 or a 4.0 or whatever, kind of starts to germinate there. What I think is really important to note about non-Jews in that story is at least two things, right? One, many of those Jews are married to non-Jews, have non-Jewish relatives through their spouse or, or just through themselves, um, you know, whose own children may see themselves as as being both and, etc. And so there are going to be a lot of non-Jews in intimate relationships with those Jews. And in many ways, those Jews are not that different from regular any other non-Jew who's around in their in their world, in their town, in their culture, if it's another country, you know, and in their country, whatever. And if a new approach to living Jewishly that was radically different from the traditional approach were found that really resonated with those Jews, the odds are that it would also really resonate with many non-Jews who are very much like them. And I also want to emphasize 
that we're talking in the framework of conversion and and in a sense of being Jewish. What's not clear to me, genuinely not clear to me, I think it could go either way, is if in the future we will have people converting to Judaism in the sense that they have in the past where they are deciding to be Jewish and not be the thing that they were before. I think a lot of people are doing that now. I, th- I think people will continue to do that. And I do think that there could be an increase, especially if we actively looked for an increase on that. That's step one. Possibly bigger paradigm shift and step is that we have people who don't convert, but who also participate in Judaism and Jewish institutions, etc., in a way that is more than just sort of ally um, and just like attendee at a friend's event to support them or whatever, or, or like, and and the best example for that is people in interfaith families. We have people already talking about how people like we should understand those people who are not Jewish, who don't identify as Jewish, but are part of say the Jewish people in a different way than we have historically, or maybe actually a way similar to how the Bible does, where those people are in a sense fellow travelers in this thing, even if they are not Jewish themselves. But I don't think it's just people in families. And I certainly don't think it's going to be in the future because all of these lines are blurring and permeating. And I bring all this up because I I think the tsunami might look different from what we think. It, I think. I think it's as likely to me I started by saying I'm not sure. I'm still unsure. It's as likely to me that we will see like millions of people, some movement in some set of countries decide that they want to be Jewish, like as an identity in the sense that I and you, Dan, are Jewish. Uh, like, But it's also conceivable to me that that many people or maybe even more will take on elements of Judaism in the way that people take on yoga, which is native to Hinduism, and it will be an important part of their life. And and it will actually be something that they do or think about daily, but they won't necessarily be Jewish. And I think that both of those elements are really crucial for us to think about because different strategies could lead to sort of catalyzing both. And what all this gets me to, Dan, is that the family idea, it's like interesting because if Judaism is a family, like it's, and we talked about this with Yehuda Kurtzer, actually, like it's weird to think about how you convert into a family in the sense that you convert into a religion. But I was thinking about this recently. We have, in a sense, converting into a family, both when people take on the last name of their partner, they are like in a in a real sense entering into a family that they didn't grow up with. But also, I, just about everybody I know grew up with Uncle Fred or Aunt Joan or Uncle Herb, who wasn't their actual uncle or their actual aunt, but was a close family friend who like came to family functions, whatever, like was was close enough knit to their family that they may as well have been an uncle or an aunt. And that to me is a really good model for what we might be seeing with future kinds of Jews. People who, once again, they're not calling themselves Jewish, but they're sort of there in the meta- in the literal and metaphorical room as much as deeply as people who are Jewish are. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And also, you know, it's so sad to me, the idea that 
you know, again, back to in a different context, back to the idea that, you know, Erwin Kula was putting out that that religion or Judaism should be a technology of human flourishing. Well, what would it look like for there to be a technology, you know, an approach that would allow for Jewish flourishing? And I think that to some extent we see elements of it, including the great openness to joining up by people who have many things to bring, but we're not seeing that. We don't fully embrace that because we've somehow internalized both the self-hatred, right, that you talked about, the idea that ah, Judaism's not that great, How, why would anyone convert, it's not really, worth, you know, but when non-Jews see it, many of them are like, oh, this is really great, like, I really like, you know, so, so much great stuff, and we, we were like, really? You, you know, it's like, it's so sad that we have that kind of self-image, you know, and, and, and also this idea that somehow the the goal here is to keep all the Jews Jewish, you know, as opposed to the goal being to develop, you know, to, to, to constantly develop a way of being Jewish that allows for human thriving, and that if it allowed for human thriving, it would thrive because people would want to be part of it, you know, and if you're not open to people becoming part of it, then you, you end up going into a, a, a loop, which ultimately is a doom spiral. And, and that's really sad to see. I just had a funny thought when you said keep. Um, I, I flashed to the, the different verbs that the Torah uses to command the Israelites to, to, as we usually say, keep Shabbat. So it says three verbs. Um, one is there both times. Um, so there's two Ten Commandments in the Bible. And in one spot, it famously says, keep Shabbat and make it holy. Um, make it holy, make it sacred. I'm going to take some liberties and, and use make it special for my own purposes. You can, listeners, if that outrages you, please send us a note. Um, and the other time it says, remember Shabbat and and keep it holy. I actually, and people sometimes I've been in text studies where you talk about like, do you relate better to keeping Shabbat or remembering Shabbat? Which, and I'm like, I actually am like very neutral about both of them. And I'm very neutral about like when we focus on keeping Jews. So what we were talking about is sort of keeping the numbers of Jews, like maintaining maintenance. That's what I get from the word keep. And remember also is backward looking and about the past. And I feel like there's a lot, a lot of Jews who are keep and remember Jews. And I much prefer the the verb that's there both times. Um, make it sacred, make it special, make it make it holy. I am interested in a Judaism. And I would say that that's, once again, this is taking some liberties. I think flourish, if we were to choose one of the, I think flourish actually isn't so far from the idea of the verb is mikadesh, of sanctifying, of making something holy, making something elevated and special. Like human flourishing actually seems pretty close to that. And so I guess I really, in the midst of all this, think that if we could find a way to focus on the question of how to make Judaism sacred or special in today's world, we would be much more likely to approach the conversion question and everything else with the idea of, wow, this is such a great new opportunity. When we, when we adopt either the keep or the remember frameworks, it's, it's a huge challenge because it's, it's just a preservationism that drowning in anxiety and worry. It makes me think of our discussion with Chaim Herring 
And in particular, you know, the beginning of the idea of, you know, what is a futurist? You know, and he explained to us that a futurist yeah. isn't somebody who tells the future as much as you wish that there were such a person. But it's someone who is able to really look at the trend lines and help you plan for the future or the, the potential futures that are out there, right? And really sort of focus you on the future. And I think we've talked about it before. You know, I love the quote by William Gibson, the science fiction writer, where he talks about how the future, this is his quote, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. And what that means, right, is that you can look around at some of the more pathbreaking things that are happening today and think about what would it look like if that became much more dominant. And it seems that there may be things that we could debate about, including how interested non-Jews may ultimately be in Judaism, right? But one thing we cannot debate about is the incredible changes that the digital age have brought about on a variety of levels, but to talk at least about two, you know, one is um, one is information and the other is connectivity, let's say, right? The idea that every piece of information about Judaism is probably currently available to you with a Google search. And if not currently, it will be within the next decade, as we, we just see the, the organization Safaria, which is uh, p putting all of the digital, all of the Jewish books uh, and writings, making them available on the web in, in wonderful ways. Um, it's only a matter of time and not much time until you can get everything. And, and at that point, you know, I remember the stories where they used to hear about the rabbis who could, you know, put a pin through the Talmud and know where it stopped and they could know exactly the word that the pin went through. And that was like some great example of just tremendous learning, which I very much appreciate. But now basically every person can do that um, in a different way. But every person can in seconds get whatever knowledge they're looking for. So how does that change things, right? Like, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I know that's definitely the question. And so I think it's really fascinating to imagine a world, again, if we want to come back to this futurism, right? This idea of looking at the future that's already here and just asking what it would look like if it were more evenly distributed and, and just sort of putting the pieces together, saying, you know, we can have extraordinary people like Binet who master one element of of Judaism in an extremely powerful way and bring that to the center, right? And then we can imagine, right, Binet's doing most of this right now uh, person to person. But what does that look like when, when you know, essentially uh, Binet uh, is able to diffuse her approach to Talmud through the internet methodology that Juan Mejia is using to diffuse his particular approach to Spanish language Judaism, right, in the way that he described. And, and so, you know, and what if, what if, what happens when we end up with, you know, 50 people like that, each of whom has found a way to put an extraordinary experience out there on the internet that is really just getting at one slice of Judaism, but these are all connecting with with thousands of people who either are not Jewish or not are Jewish, but not very involved, right? Some of those people um, start using multiple ones of those, you know, and you can start to see what we've been talking about, I think, all along on this show, the idea, right, that 
that in these transition periods, the old system and maybe the old community sort of breaks apart and modularizes. But then it's not a, it's not a, they, they don't, they don't, they don't diffuse away. They end up, um, some of them will, will not work, but some of them will work and start to gravitate back towards each other and connect, interconnect again and, and potentially resynthesize into a new system. And to me, you know, it's just, uh, this could take 50 years, it could take 300 years, but it seems so clear to me what the pathway looks like for this to happen. And it's a pathway that ends up with there being more Jews than there have ever been before in history, uh, and more people like you're talking about that are living elements of Judaism without calling themselves Jews, right? But um, but more than we've ever had before, right? Talk about flourishing. I, you know, I don't look at this as a challenge of trying to stop the bleeding, right? To me, this is about, like Erwin Kulo's talking about, once we find a version or versions of Judaism that truly uh, operate as technologies of human flourishing, I think Judaism will also flourish in, in a way that we've never seen before. And it's exciting to see Gibson's idea out there in the world, right? When I look around in the world and I see the Juan Mejias and I see the B'nai Lapis, I start to see, and I, and I see the internet, right? I start to see the future that's already here, but just not evenly distributed. And it starts to sort of form a picture in my mind of what it looks like when it's evenly distributed. And it's super exciting to me. You brought up so many really important pieces there. And I just wanted to bring in one more, which is a little bit of Carmel Chiswick's lens, because she introduced this concept that isn't, isn't going to shock anyone who's familiar with basic, even, you know, basic economics, but it's just, you know, in addition to the budget of money, the budget of time. And she started to apply it to Judaism. And it's a really important thing for all of us to think about. And I just wanted to share on a personal note, because what's been interesting to me the last few years um, is when I was in college and for the first few years out, out of college, I was like in the... the Every local community has its, you know, super involved, deeply, deeply engaged Jewish people. And I was that for all of college and for the first two years after. And, and so in terms of my time to bring up Chiswick, I was basically devoting uh, like on a daily basis hours of my time to institutional Jewish life um, and very classic forms of it in college and shortly afterwards. Now, granted, I, I work for a Jewish organization, but in terms of my sort of personal participation and involvement, not as a producer, but as a as somebody who is a member or supporter of these different things, I spend way less time on Judaism. I do. And for a while, I was like deeply uncomfortable with myself about that and like sad and and a little bit angry at myself. Like I felt that that, that I was like not holding up my end of the stick. And like, I was, because I think there's this deeply internalized equation between the amount of time you spend on Judaism and how much you care about it. And I think that's a really harmful thing. I think it's like a really deeply, deeply harmful thing because what it leads to is us dismissing people who don't spend daily time on Jewish life, on Judaism, on Jewish institutions, it leads us to dismiss them as as though they don't care about Judaism. And 
And I think that the reason we do that is because it's an empowering thing for those of us who are in that world. Like, look at how, like, it's, it's very, it, it's um, very reassuring to be like, wow, I, I like, am really doing my part in like supporting this thing and putting all my time in. And that's, and I don't want to dismiss people who do that, but now having spent a couple years, I'm still pretty involved. It's not like I, um, in the grand scheme, I'm, I'm on the very high end of like involvement. If we were, if I were, we were talking about the customer bases, or I'm still towards the high end, but in the local community in Providence, I, I certainly don't know everybody. I, and it's a small community. I certainly am not on a daily or even weekly basis spending time in immersed in Jewish institutions here. Um, and yet I feel as deeply connected as I always have. And when I do things, I, I honestly find that they are a better like bang for my buck, quote unquote. Like I'm getting more out of it than I did when I was so deeply in it all the time and spending a daily, because Judaism is actually something that is like exciting to me when I enter into it after not being there constantly for the last, you know, 17 months. Um, I just wanted to bring that up because I think that working on cheaper forms of Judaism, cheaper in the time sense, I think there's this huge hesitation in all of us, and I'm still including me in that, but it really isn't about discarding Judaism. It's about identifying ways of connecting and being and participating Jewishly that that don't require people to spend hours and hours of their weeks and months on it. Um, I think that's important. And so on that note, we're going to arc towards the conclusion of this episode. And we've got some exciting ideas in the hopper. And so I would love to hear from you, Dan, about what we've got planned for the next couple months. Yeah, well, as you said earlier, Passover is coming up in a few days. And so we want to wish everyone a happy Passover. And then what we're going to spend the next seven weeks doing is uh, trying through the podcast a little bit to experiment with taking this idea of the Omer more seriously as a Jewish holiday in and of itself. Um, the Omer is this seven-week period that goes from Passover to Shavuot. And in the sort of rabbinic reconstruction of the holidays, Passover became the holiday where we reenact the Exodus, and Shavuot became the holiday where we reenacted the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And the Omer, the period in between them, uh, hasn't really been seen as a reenactment so much in in the way that it's been used in the past in rabbinic Judaism. It's been seen uh, in, in a variety of other ways. Uh, but I'm really interested in this idea that if Passover is the Exodus and Shavuot is Sinai, then that seven weeks in between would be the time in which we were kind of wandering around waiting for the Torah, i.e. waiting for this new version of Judaism to come about. And so what would it look like to celebrate this period as the time in which we kind of are most open to possibility? That's basically what, uh, what we're thinking about. And the way that we thought we could at least begin to explore that concept is to look at an analogous landscape of openness and possibility in our world today, which is Silicon Valley. And so we're going to be spending the next seven weeks in Silicon Valley with a number of 
uh, folks out there that are uh, at the forefront of the world of, of innovation out there in the tech world, as well as Jewish leaders in Silicon Valley. And we're going to really try to uh, look at this question of, is there something that we can really learn from the text, the story of the Exodus, uh, the story of that part of Jewish mythic history, and also learn from the folks who are kind of doing that out there today in the technology world and try to put those pieces together and ask how can we use those ideas in our uh, thinking about Judaism going forward. So we're really excited. We got some really amazing guests that are going to be coming on the show from all kinds of uh, prominent technology companies and uh, don't want to give too much away yet, but we really hope that you'll uh, tune in for the next few weeks. Yeah, totally echo that. And the last plug that I'd make before closing is that we've got Passover coming up in just a few days, and we're launching our Passover Unbound initiative that we would really love for all of you out there to participate in. It's crazy to think about, but this will be the last holiday of our Unbound holiday cycle because we started with Shavuot last year, um, and we will have had one full year of of digital holiday initiatives, which we started as a wacky experiment and which have reached thousands of people so far. So we're excited for the Passover rendition of of our digital holiday cycle. We hope you'll check it out. And um, definitely I'd echo Dan's excitement about this, this Omer series that we've got coming up. It's going to be a good time. So um, we're going to close the episode as we always do with a plea a call to all of you out there to please be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can always head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. You can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. And as Dan said at the beginning of the episode, we always are appreciative to those who can support us financially. And you can do that either with a monthly recurring donation or a one-time gift at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much to all of you for listening to this episode. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.